So today we have Dr. Hopi Hawkestra to join us. Dr. Hopi Hawkestra is an uh, Alexander Agassiza professor of zoology in the Department of uh, Organismic and Evolutionary Biology, Department of Molecular and Cellular Biology, Museum of Comparative Zoology at Harvard University. She has a, a fantastic research program. Her lab members and her research uh, focus on wild and laboratory rodent populations and use rodents as a model to study the molecular, the genetic, and the um, developmental um, mechanisms underlying the ev evolutionary changes. You're very famous for studying <laughs> rodent behavior, morphology, and their um, genetic components. Mm -hmm. So thank you so much uh, for coming to our show. Oh, thank you for having me. So I, ha I actually uh, have met you back in 2011 mm -hmm. at the University of Illinois at uh -huh. Urbana, which you came to give a talk. Yeah. yeah so I after six years, yeah. <laughs> now we met again. I'm yep. so happy and very excited to see you. <laughs> Good um, to see you again, too. Yeah. So I just have a, a few questions for you. Great. Um, so let's start uh, with the beginning of your interest. Yeah. So why are you interested in rodents? In rodents. So, um, you know, there where, where you started as a little kid? Yeah. So I loved animals as a little kid, but as most little kids do, I uh -huh. didn't have a particular fondness for rodents. Although I do remember having a hamster named Rambo when I was a kid. Yeah. Um, but I think that I came to work on rodents like, a, I think a lot of scientists, as they're developing their interests through graduate school and um, as postdocs, you sort of try things that you like and that work, and then you realize the limitations, and you sort of wander until you hit that happy medium that works for you. Mm -hmm. So I had started as an undergraduate working on invertebrates, and that's how I fell in love with the research process, but not necessarily on, with cockroaches. Yeah. Um, centipedes right. a yeah. little bit. Um, and then... Um, and then after uh, my undergraduate, I wanted—I knew I wanted to go to graduate school. I knew I wanted to do research, but I didn't know exactly with what. And I had spent some time at Berkeley's Museum of Vertebrate Zoology mm -hmm. with Jim Patton, the mammal curator. And so I had this sort of interest in mammals because of him, and he was so inspiring and so forth. Um, and then I had this year off, and I was going to figure out what I wanted to do. And I, but I also wanted a little adventure because I thought before I start my PhD is a All good right, time. Take a break. Take a break, do something fun. So I went to Yellowstone for a year and worked oh. on grizzly bears. Wow. Right, which so you can imagine starting with cockroaches and then swinging all the yeah. way to the all other the end of the spectrum. Uh -huh. Yep, grizzly bears. And so, um, and then I, that was great fun, but I realized that for probably pretty obvious reasons, they're not the best model organism to do any sort of experiment, for example. <laughs> so then I sort of swung back the other direction and ended uh -huh. up working on, on rodents. And mm -hmm. for me, it was a combination of um, them being both accessible in the field um, and also closely related to a traditional model organism mm -hmm. where all the wonderful tools and techniques had been right. developed by um, a community and so I could sort of both do field and lab work, and I think that's been a real theme throughout um, mm -hmm. my research career is wanting to take advantage of both those mm -hmm. um, approaches. And that makes sense if, you know, we are trying to capture and understand 
the nitty-gritty molecular details, but of natural variation. You right. have to work in the lab in the field. Yeah. So you uh, you use a very integrative uh, approach. We to, try <laughs> to combine field and natural history mm-hmm. of the the organism, but also um, to look at their molecular uh, yeah. underlying mechanisms. Yeah, yeah. So that's fantastic. Uh, for me, I think in order to study the genetics of behavior or any phenotype, mm-hmm. it, it's um, it's more and more necessary to use different approaches mm-hmm. and to look at the question. Um, so your lab. Is um, it is doing a lot of fantastic and and really amazing research. So can you give us a little bit like peek into <laughs> what is the most exciting research well, you're doing right now in the lab? Yeah, well, and maybe close yeah. to come <laughs> to tell the world. Yeah. So um, the lab is really unified by um, an interest in understanding the molecular basis of traits that matter to organisms in the wild. And that comes in a lot of flavors. So the lab started working on pigmentation genetics, um, and that was a great place to start in retrospect. Uh, We know a lot about the developmental processes of candidate genes, of how pigmentation works from wonderful studies in Mm -hmm. um, laboratory mice Mm -hmm. for the last hundred some odd years. Um, and, and you, you and have a recent paper on um, the the stripes yeah, of the, the exactly. little, yeah, mammals. Yeah. So Ricardo Malarino, a postdoc in the lab, loved this project where we've now moved a little bit away from whole body changes in color to the more um, nuanced question of, you know, how are particular patterns made. And in that case, we used um, a new model system for our lab, and that is um, African striped mice okay. because they breed really well in the lab and they uh-huh. have these beautiful racing stripes down their back. And Ricardo um, and his collaborators, including folks like Greg Barshett, um, Hudson Alpha, really um, were able to get down to the sort of developmental and molecular details of how stripes are formed in in these crazy um, African striped mice. And then also looked at a species that's more familiar to many of us, and that is the North American chipmunks, Mm -hmm. to show or suggest that um, they probably make stripes in a very similar way. so were we, you able to make a, a zebra oh, or mosaic chipmunk? Yeah, so that's what's going to make Ricardo rich and famous is, you know, <laughs> making striped uh, mice and selling them in the pet trade or something. But no, we, we, we have not done that yet. And I think Ricardo will, um, over time, figure out all of the molecular players. Mm-hmm. This was just the identification of one of the first. Yeah. Um, and so that's a, a nice example of how we took advantage of natural variation to work out how these patterns are set up, which addresses, I think, a fundamental question in developmental biology of how do patterns mm-hmm. sort of form, and for us also, we're interested in how they evolve. Um, and so we have done a lot with pigmentation, now getting to more complex pigmentation phenotypes. We've moved into more complex morphological traits, and then most recently, the labs become increasingly interested in the genetic basis of behavior. Mm. And that has been... Um, uh, the bur- challenging, yeah. yeah. I heard about the burrowing. Yeah. yeah, burrowing. So burrowing is one of the first behaviors mm-hmm. um, we worked on. And um, one of the nice things about working on burrows themselves is that instead of measuring, at least initially, the behavior of the mouse itself, we could focus on the burrow that it produced as what's called an extended phenotype, the idea mm-hmm. that Richard Dawkins put forth in his um, 1982 book called The Extended Phenotype. And so that allowed us to circumvent all the challenges there are to measuring mouse behavior 
by focusing on the burrow, and then we could measure it just like we measured a, a bone in a body with mm-hmm. you know, with a ruler. You could mm-hmm. put a ruler up to mm-hmm. this. And so it allowed us our first forays into the genetics of behavior um, without having to measure behavior. Mm-hmm. It was like measuring morphology. Mm-hmm. And that was a nice sort of um, uh, easy step into a very complicated um, field or a very complicated <coughs> set of phenotypes. And... Um, you know, while it's challenging because behaviors are harder to measure than mm-hmm. most morphological traits, um, you're working primarily in the brain, which is a complex heterogeneous mm-hmm. organ. Um, you know, all, everything is a little bit more difficult with behavior, but at the same time, it's such an inherently interesting question of you know how do genes influence behavior right. and how do those changes in genes produce variation in behavior that's important for mm-hmm. organisms in their natural habitats that, um, you know, even though it's hard, we're still trying to go after it motivated by this bigger um, question. Yeah. So some of the latest work in the lab has really um, uh, been focused in that arena. Um, and slowly we're getting to yeah. the point where we can actually make some connections between genes and behavioral traits. Great. For your lab, mm-hmm. you, I think you have a fairly big lab. Is there uh, any traditional activity for oh, lab members to do each year? Or you have a field trip <laughs> yep. to go? So various people go out into the field um, for their projects. Um, not everybody has a field component, but some certainly do. We've been talking a lot about, um, you know, what we're gonna, what our, our retreat is going to be like. Um, when I got tenure, we took a rafting trip with the whole <laughs> mm-hmm. lab. Luckily, didn't lose anyone. Yeah. Um, and like a whitewater? Whitewater rafting? river rafting Whoa. up in New Hampshire. Uh-huh. Uh, and we rented a cabin. And I could. there are still stories that shouldn't be told from that trip. We just had such a fun, uh, fun time. And um, we haven't been doing as many retreats lately, but the next thing up on our social agenda um, is we're having a... Um, wine and paint night, and that's because we just moved into a new lab space. Uh huh. Wine so, and paint. Wine and wine and paint. So I'll explain oh, this. Oh, wine and paint. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so we moved into a new lab space that has all these empty walls, and we need to put something up on the walls. So the idea is everybody brings a um, a bottle of wine, and we'll provide paints, and we're all going to paint pictures of paramiscus um, with snacks and drinks, and um, and those will be framed and put on the wall. And nice. I can certainly say. Um, at the outset, there's a range of um, artistic abilities in the lab, me probably being the worst, and I have some very talented um, artists. artists. <laughs> so I think it's going to be quite fun to see yeah. the range of pictures that get put up. So we'll see how that goes. That's scheduled for later this month. Yeah, that sounds fun. Yeah, um. we'll see. <laughs> so as a scientist, we are professional writers. You know, we write a lot in order to publish our results and tell the world the fascinating research we're doing. So do you write every day? (laughs) Or do you try to write on a regular basis? I think that's a great question. I think writing is a challenge. Not only um, is writing hard just inherently sort of um, challenging for a lot of of us, um, it's also the thing that doesn't have a deadline often. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's the easiest thing to sort of push to the side. Um, and it's something I certainly struggle with. And one of the things I've done recently is that um, I know is what I struggle with is finding blocks of time because it's hard. I can answer emails, you know, between meetings and things like that, but it's hard to write and 
in a little block of the time, yeah. like half an hour, one hour. Yeah. So um, one of the things I do is I try to write in the morning when I that's a good time for me. My I'm fresh and so forth. And then the other time I get blocks of time is after my son goes to sleep in the evenings. Um, but that's challenging in that you tend to be really tired after a long day. So just recently, um, I've started I've negotiated with my husband to have. Um, Sunday mornings as a time block, and students will sign up and will sit next to each other for three hours and mm. work on a paper. Mm-hmm. And so that achieves a, a few things. One, that's our uh, block of time. Mm-hmm. Two, with the student sitting there, if a question comes up, student or postdoc, a question comes up, you don't have to email and wait for the answer. We just settle it together. We discuss things. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, can be really, really efficient. Mm-hmm. And then third, a thing that that achieves is that you know, it's one thing that your mentor reads your paper, makes a bunch of comments, and then you go click accept, accept change. Sitting next to somebody and being able to explain why you're making a change or, hey, I noticed that in your writing there is mm-hmm. this trend and maybe we should do this mm-hmm. or you should think about this. It's so much easier when somebody's sitting right next to you mm-hmm. and can explain that. Um, but that's also comprehensive yeah. and can give you the reason why yes. you think that exactly. the change in elaborate. Right. So I think it's also a really nice training opportunity that because our time is so limited and, you know, you're writing really quick, it's very easy to just make changes, send it off to the student and never sit down and sort of um, take yeah. advantage of this. Yeah. And that's something important, right? We all struggle um, with writing to some extent, whether it's finding time or actually writing. Mm-hmm. And um, being a great good writer, as you said, not just good, good and efficient, um, is a real skill that's often a learned skill. Um, and so my hope is that this strategy is going to be able to sort of kill two birds with one stone, finding that block of time and yeah. doing training at the same yeah. time. So we'll see how it goes. You have to check back. And okay. <laughs> see so how, cool. if I like it, my students <laughs> like it, and we'll yeah. see. So as you mentioned a little bit, you, you have family. Mm-hmm. Um, as a scientist, mm-hmm. we have multi-tasks. Yes. You know, running a big lab as you have and teaching yep. and with the family. Yep. So how do you balance <laughs> so your work and lifetime? Yep. Um, this is a constant struggle, and I think will always be a struggle to find that right balance. Um, I just have finished um, teaching for the um, term, which is um, both a big relief because um, I spend... I mean, everybody does, but I certainly spend a lot of time preparing lectures and thinking about them and trying to approve them every year and so forth. And I teach in a big class, so there's a lot of administrative sort of dealings that we we sort of do. Um, but I also miss teaching. Like you, you get in a role and you get to you get to know the students and you see them working hard and so forth. So it's always a little bit bittersweet. But the the thing that I always find the most challenging is that balance. Like I love teaching. And I love research, and then when you have to do both at one time, you feel like you're not giving 100, you're, you're by definition mm-hmm. not giving 100% right. of both. Um, and so that's a, that's one sort of balance that you have to um, meet. And then when you have family, that's another thing that plays into that picture. For me, having a um, family has made life much more balanced when it was because, um, you know, I have to make decisions about if I go to this evening talk or this evening event or I travel, it's at a cost, and that is mm-hmm. I don't get to see my mm-hmm. family. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's changed, tipped the balances in some ways, the cost benefits of going to um, certain events. Yeah. Um, but I do feel much more balanced, certainly, than I did before tenure. Well, yeah. Um, <laughs> and I didn't have a small child. Um, 
But I think for everybody, whether you have kids or not, whether you teach more or less, um, even within research, you know, how much do you write versus how much here in the lab, there's always, you know, time is finite. Yeah. Um, but you have infinite number of questions you want answered as a yeah. scientist. <laughs> and so there's always going to be a struggle. It, and is the calendar uh, one type of solution? Oh, <laughs> solution so, yes. Calendar. I definitely have my Google Calendar that my administrative assistant has access to and nobody yeah, else. Yeah. Um, and she's been absolutely wonderful in helping me schedule things and, and all of that. So I do have this external help. And then I've definitely noticed um, I've, I've become more efficient, certainly, as I've matured or aged or however you want to say it. <laughs> um, and there are new tricks that I use that help me um, yeah. be more efficient. So, for example, um, I use this program that's very simple called Evernote. That It's like a, almost a oh, fancy yeah, way to about have, it. Yeah, it's great. It's great because it's not too complicated, but... Um, it works really well for me, so I keep lists of everything. Mm -hmm. I have, a, for example, a to-do list mm -hmm. where I list my stuff, but both my um, uh, lab manager and my administrative assistant have access to it, so they can add to it. Um, students can go to them and say, has my letter been sent, and they'll see a check <laughs> or not. Um, and um, that's been really good, and then we have lists for my lab manager, and, and yeah. so we're all sort of so that's in touch. Good. That's a division of labor. labor. Yeah, <laughs> so we work very much as a team yeah. to keep the everything yes. running. Um, yeah. But I think that uh, you know, one thing in talking to students, even today, you know, we talked about there are always good tips you could get for mm. time efficiency, and yeah. talking to your colleagues <laughs> and your peers. Um, They'll have good tips, and it's the young people too that know all the fancy apps that you can right. use to. You're just gonna figure out what works yeah. for you, right? Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so normally we ask the ask the guest mm -hmm. to give a, a book to for readers to read. Oh. But uh -huh. but today mm -hmm. I'm I'm giving bonus for parents out there who's listening who are listening. Yeah. So let's. Could you recommend a children's book? Oh, a children's book. <laughs> Um, or maybe a book you're reading to your yeah, my kid now or recently. Yep. No, we we read a lot, so I'm trying to pick Anything out. Anything about rodents or uh, there are There are uh, an enormous number of books on mice, uh, and yeah, we read mice. lots of those. Um, there's one book that I really like called The Watcher, and that's a story of Jane Goodall, hmm. um, but geared towards, so my son is um, five, and we've been reading it to him for a few years, and that's been really fun. Because it's about Jane Goodall, you know, starting initially as a child mm -hmm. observing animals and then her life story, and you learn a little bit about conservation at the end. Mm -hmm. And another one that my son has really liked is, it's again, um, a children's story about, this time about Paul Erdos, the famous mathematician. Yeah. Um, and my son really at the moment likes numbers, and so it's a very cute oh, story. Yes. And I've learned a little bit about Paul Erdos, too. Yeah. Um, and so that's a cute story. So we, But we also read you know, um, roll doll books and all sorts of things. But um, every once in a while, it's kind of fun to slip in a <laughs> biography about, yeah. um, you know, some famous scientists in yeah. there. Um, our poor son is getting exposed, overly exposed to oh, science. But. Well, I think all of the children yeah. in the scientist families yeah. are, are yeah. exposed that way. Exactly. Um, so I, think I, I would... read my kids um, B and E. The study bees oh, in the animal homes. Oh, yes. Have, yeah, yep. that is a really that one good too. one. Yeah. 
Um, especially, I think, in, for parents who are biologists, there are so many books about Bias. animals. Yeah. And oh, there's one called Mouse Paint. Um, mm-hmm. That's um, I always have really liked because it's about sort of mice being camouflaged, and uh. that's of course what we. The lab started with yeah. studying the genetics of yeah. cryptic. Yeah, related to rodents, I only know the Miss Susie. Oh. My husband has that. I don't old even know book. that one. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was from 1960s. Yeah, yeah. So, as a female scientist, yeah. could you, based on your experience yeah. in the past, could you give some advice for the future young women scientists yeah. in in the world oh. in such you know in current situation yeah. of academia yeah I think that there's a lot of advice that I would give to both male and female junior scientists. Uh-huh. Um, I think the one thing I would say to female scientists um, is to that there's a real opportunity to support each other um, as we go through academics and. Um, I've certainly, as I've um, again become more senior, um, see the value in having um, good mentorship. Um, both me rec- having received it, and then um, providing that to um, my students and trainees, um, and seeking out good mentors, and um, eventually becoming good mentors, mm-hmm. becoming good colleagues. Um, and peers, I think, is really important. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. um, we can do a lot to support each other. And even junior, you know, junior scientists who think of being a mentee can be mentors as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and that uh, is an important uh, important thing to keep in mind. I see. That's good to know. So <laughs> find a group to support you yep. or a mentor. And so to go along the journey together yep. in, when you are, you know, in a down situation or in a celebration, new yes. <laughs> events and success, and yep. they all they will be there to support you. Yeah, yeah. So in the last, um, there's a recent news mm-hmm. about museum collections. Oh yes, uh, it's the University of Louisiana at a one campus. Yep, they are going to build a track. Yes, um, I heard about this <laughs> field track. Yep. so they give like scientists. 48 hours to dispose or, you know, relocate yep. thousands of yep. museum collections. And, yeah, so, and and that's actually kind of not uncommon in a in mm-hmm. lot of universities. They try to downsize the collections on yep. the museum, yeah. So because you're affiliated yep. with the Museum of Zoology yep. at Harvard University, could you... You know, what can we help in this situation? <laughs> so, yes, I saw this story, and, and because I'm a curator, it sort of was near and dear to my um, heart. And uh, and from what I understand, the collections have been given a reprieve, and so the, it's not as time-sensitive, but they do need to be relocated in... Um, in a few and, months, yeah. Yeah, in a few months, which is, you know, at least time for some action to happen. And I guess the other sort of side note I would say is that this really, the story really highlights the power of social media because I think that just spread like wildfire and really allowed a lot of people to get on board to help instigate change here in a very positive way or at least, you know, save the collections from imminent destruction. Mm-hmm. Um so, you know, a lot of universities um, many years ago went through the same process of deciding whether or not they were going to keep their museum collections. Um, and uh, while some certainly 
um, did um, get rid of their collections, I think many of those places at some level are, are regretting it. Um, and these collections um, have proven more and more valuable through time, right? Our ability to get DNA out of museum specimens, mm -hmm. our ability to look at changes in um, phenotypes or traits through, a, you know, changing environments like climate and so forth. Oh, I got to um, talk to you about this. Not yeah. to run in. No, go ahead. I got to remember to talk to you about it. Um, and so I think it's something we have to keep a watch on because museum collections, by definition, um, have there's a lot of space associated mm -hmm. with those, and mm -hmm. space we know is always at a premium. Yeah. So my hope is. So is, is there any potential funding, or uh, from the government, or yeah. <laughs> or any other Somebody sources, from the government? <laughs> um, to support yeah. kind of museums and collection collections? I, I think there's funds from the NSF that certainly help um, with m biological collections and some um, funding from NIH that has helped traditionally living collections um, as well. Um, you know, we're in perilous times. We'll see what happens. Yeah. But um, they're really important, and um, yeah. I hope we continue to fight for them. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much, Hopi. I really appreciate your time, and thank you so much um, for, for all your insights yeah. uh, from today. Okay. Uh, Thanks for having me. <laughs>